So my big line is that whenever somebody tells me that something is natural, I just automatically hear it as cultural. Because the natural is a category that we have made up right. to hide cultural norms. That's Nalen Blake. He's unapologetically queer. He's also an accomplished arts educator, a renowned artist, a zine aficionado, among other things. And he's on this special episode for Pride Month of Art Movements. Why, you ask? Well, Nayland inspires me and many others with his boundary-busting attitude towards life and art. So in this episode, I'm going to be speaking to this maestro of queerness. I started by asking him his coming out story, which I always find every queer person has, or at least their own version of it anyway. As expected, his wasn't all that conventional. I don't know if I have a traditional coming out story so much. And I think it's because of the sort of particularities of my upbringing. Mm-hmm. I used to say that I'm what you get when you apply all of the 60s social engineering to a situation, right? So you get like a queer interracial kid who, you know, favors socialism and and explores their own creativity. I, you know, I grew up here in New York. I, I loved how you said that, by the way. <laughs> all, the, all, the, all, the, all that, all that 60s and one person. Yeah, a yeah. proud American mongrel is what, I, <laughs> yeah, is what right. I like to... I mean, you know, I, I was born here in New York in 1960. My, my dad's black, my mom's white, and was raised here, went to New York City public schools at a point when there was an experiment with something called like open corridor. Was It was sort of like self-directed learning. Mm-hmm did not last for very long, but I grew up in... So I, I, that was partially my experience in public school. Again, very uh, very racially diverse school. I grew up in a neighborhood in a building that was specifically designed for mixed-income families to be able to like buy co-ops. Mm-hmm. And so that that was something that happened. So there were by you know by default there were a lot of creative people in that building. Our next door neighbor in that building was a gay couple. So I kind of grew up with like a gay couple next door who mm-hmm. were part of our you know part of our like daily experience. Right. And what was your experience of them being there? Was there any animosity towards them? No, they were. No, it was like Uncle Mike and Uncle Ken. Right. You know? Right. And no, I mean, I have to admit that at the same time that I was, you know, rooting around, sneaking looks at my parents, you know, copies of adult magazines. I was like at times when I was supposed to look after their house plants and things like that next door I was also like rooting around finding their porn <laughs> you know <laughs> and so you know by the time I hit adolescence it was not so and you know that was like 1972 1973 in New York so it was not unheard of that there were queer people around the first Broadway show that I went to in 1969 was 
hair that my parents took me to. They'll t- they'll do it. Yeah, I immediately like came home and started drawing pictures of <laughs> of Woof, the one gay character. <laughs> the next year we went to uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. And I immediately came home and started drawing pictures of King Herod, the only gay character. <laughs> so, you know, there was something, clearly something was up. Your attention was going somewhere. Yeah, exactly. I was right. finding the stories that I needed in the culture. Right. Do you think because you lived in New York, you're able to do that? Because, you know, so many people say that that's not available to them. Yeah. Even now. Yeah. I think that that's a huge thing. Mm-hmm. But I do think that also that kids find the queerness that they need growing up in whatever culture they're given. Right. You know, so for me, like the Adams Family TV show was a huge kind of model for like a kind of almost queer accepting family, even though nobody's specifically coded queer in that family. They're all right. like. They're all kinky, basically. They all have like right. rooms with torture devices in them, and and similarly, I was like a big science fiction nerd and Spock in Star Trek, who right. is, you know, a bi species character. You know, in a way, was a way that that show could talk about being of mixed race and what right. that meant. Right. Well, I mean, you touch on something which I think is really important for this is as queer people, we often read things differently mm-hmm. and have to reread and edit in order to sort of, because I was thinking of, you mentioned porn, you know, the first porn I ever saw was straight porn, but it was amazing how I was able to edit out what I wanted mm-hmm. to see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. you know, and in the same way, I feel like, you know, comic books, you find that character. I used mm-hmm. to collect Alpha Flight because of the one gay character. Right. North Star. North Star. Exactly. Who see, we I both only, know that. See, I only know about that in in retrospect because right. i had left comics by the time that that was going on gotcha but i would tell you like they just reprinted the first issue mm-hmm. of alpha flight yep and puck right. i like for right. me puck i'm all over puck, puck yeah <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, this is the thing where it's like you you end up meeting people, and we both know that, right? But Mm -hmm. most people have never even heard of Alpha Flight. Mm -hmm. And these sort of things get transmitted in different ways. And I think that's really relevant to your own work, too. Mm -hmm. There's like a reading... I'll tell you one of the things, a reading and, you know, in a creative reading sometimes mm-hmm. that yeah. sort of like takes on the on the thing. So I wanted to bring up because, you know, I was poking around your website yes. and I found a charcoal drawing from 1983 mm-hmm. and you were grad school at CalArts in the L.A. area. And this is what's written here. Because you talk about the frustration in the drawing itself. And you, of course, point out that it's, well, sexual, of course. But also, I was wrestling with the problems of how to make work that was identifiably, quote-unquote, gay. And yet also made sense to me as being about something else. I was trying to pack way too much into each piece. So tell me about that. Do you still feel that way? No. Okay. In part because... The way that I resolve that dilemma, and this is a thing that happened historically, that uh, here's a capsule version of it. Before AIDS, mm-hmm. the only work that was identifiable in the art world as being gay mm-hmm. work, gay male work, was basically cheesecake right. with a male subject instead of a female subject. Right. So people could get that, like, Paul Cadmus was a gay artist. Right, right. Because there were these guys in the in and the Tom painting. Tom of Finland. 
Right. Yeah, but but I mean, in terms of the work that was in New York galleries, mm-hmm. you know, and and I grew up seeing not someone like Cadmus who was a representational painter, but seeing, you know, uh, Vito Acconci and and seeing what was you know Judy Pfaff and sort of abstract work that was in no way involved with the kind of very traditional codes of representation that were there in those in those other works. So I was, instead of looking for a kind of conscious, acceptable gay coding, what right. happens if we start saying like, everything we do is in some way gay, right? And I'm, I'm using gay quite specifically because that the sort of reclamation of queer was still like seven years off right, from exactly. from there. Yep, right. That's right. And so that was what changed things for me was when I stopped worrying about having to put like you know the picture you're looking at has like a dick in it. I know. And it was sort of like when I stopped worrying about having to like put a dick in it so that people would know that it was gay, <laughs> then it suddenly got a lot easier. And it's a penis and an underarm? Is that what yeah. it is? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. It's like, it's the it's your other crotch. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like what if you had a dick in your other crotch? <laughs> well, that seems practical. Yeah, absolutely. So now what do you think about the generations that came before? Because, you know, like their queerness or gayness was so coded. You Mm -hmm. know, and part of me has this sort of like kind of angry, like, damn, I wish they were more out. But of course, I mean, that's unrealistic because everyone has to adjust. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, so did you feel like it was an unpacking that had to happen based on what came before? Or was it a whole new thing when you were talking about sort of trying to identify the gayness of something? I think that one of the results of my upbringing was that I learned that I couldn't just be a maker of things. Mm. I had to also be a scholar. I had to also be a critic. I had to also be a curator. Right. Because that's the way that any of that work gets done. When, you know, we we say that history is written by the winners. Right. Well, when you are a loser, then the only way that you get to have history is by learning all of those skills of kind of unearthing it and researching it and reinterpreting it and gathering it together in the face of the winner. And so I'm really glad that I grew up knowing that I had to have those skills because they've served me really well, not only in terms of thinking about queer identity, but in terms of thinking about racial identity, in terms of thinking about, you know, gender identification, all of these things. It's like we have to not just be the makers of things, but we also have to actively create the context within which those things can be read and understood. And that's So how do you do that? I mean, that's that. I mean, I think that sounds ideal. Yeah. Now, how do you do it? Because you've been doing it now for decades. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I and I want to talk about this a little, too, which is I feel like there's a dematerialization in your work over the era, Mm -hmm. over these years of working. We'll talk about that, too. But curious how you're bringing that into your work. I think the way that you do it is you introduce people to each other, Mm -hmm. you curate shows, Mm -hmm. you look at what are the opportunities that you have to bring people together, whether it's like if you're referring to 
if you're going to refer to some other artist's work in a piece of writing that you're doing in a review, you think about like, okay, this is the first example that springs to mind, but is there another example mm. that would make more explicit these kinds of connections that I think are important? Mm. You know, that, that it comes down to thinking quite specifically about the way that you connect threads. And so it's not just... It's why I say that, like, I see my teaching and I see my curating and I see what I do in the studio as all being part of the same project. Mm. Um, and so that's the way that the culture that I'm interested in perpetuates itself, you know? Right. That makes sense. Now, I want to talk about one specific work. I want to mm -hmm. talk about a few works, but one specific, which I loved your description of, which was the stud bar piece from the 80s. Because uh -huh. in one of your talks, you talk about the fact that it was one of those bars in San Francisco mm -hmm. where everyone said it was always better before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then when you went back and asked other people from before, yeah. they said, oh, but it was better before. Yeah. And it was always better before. Mm -hmm. I thought in some ways that was kind of a beautiful summary of also of like queerness mm -hmm. in a way where it's sort of like, you know, even when I was coming out in the early 90s, late 80s, and, you know, at that point, it was always like, oh, we missed the great era. Mm -hmm. And then those people were like, oh, but it was before it was even more. It was a more tight knit mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. It was more people were helping each other mm -hmm. out more. And I hear it now even mm -hmm. where people sort of, you know, wax poetic about, you know, early aughts or whatever right you know so what is it about that urge what was it about that that you were trying to capture or you're trying to understand and what do you think about that well i i think i mean quite specifically the piece that you're talking about is this flag right like where, a big banner where yeah. i rearranged the logo of a bar the stud um into saying dust and this mm -hmm. was a piece made in like 87 and initially displayed in a gallery that was like two blocks away from the stud mm -hmm. so to me it was partially like here we are in the midst of the aids crisis you know that so many studs are now dust right you know the idea that you would see something in a gallery that you would then see an echo of, you know, 10 minutes later when you were out on the street, when you initially weren't supposed to be thinking of those things mm -hmm. as occupying the same space. That the art world in San Francisco was in, existed on one layer that was very different than the, like, the leather bar layer. And the stud wasn't really a leather bar, it was a dance bar. But, but in any event, those worlds in San Francisco were held to be very separate, mm -hmm. even though people operated between them. But at the time that I got there, it was like they had nothing to do with each other. Mm. Um, and again, it was my frustration at being like, well, I'm a person who operates in both of these spaces. I'm a person who has a who has a body that goes out at dances at bars and i'm a person who you know has for lack of a better term a mind that is in the studio thinking about their life right and so you know how to bring those two things into conversation with each other to let other people know that they can think about the day-to-day -day stuff in their life as intensely as they think about things in a gallery so there's that part of it in terms of a context that it was genuinely responding to. I do think that for many of us, that desire to narrate like the past as always being better, like mm -hmm. what it, however it was located, like, oh my God, if you were at the Paradise Garage, like, oh, you know, it's oh, right. it that was right. when it was right. incredible, right? You know, that in part it has to do with 
identifying the moment when we first experience the freedom of our own self-awareness and that always seems like a kind of romantic glowing moment that you know subsequent trips to the bar do not does not (laughs) recreate Mm -hmm. but i quite specifically don't believe that there was like a golden age of certainly There was not like a golden age of like gay leather life that now, you know, we we can only acknowledge how incredible it was. Like being around, you know, the fringes of the gay leather scene in the 80s, it was fucked up. It was misogynist. It was racist. Right. Like quite deliberately so. Like men of color trying to go into leather bars would get like asked for triple ID, you know, and still get turned away. Women were talked about as being fish and, you know, guys in leather would be like, ugh, I can't, like the, the horror of a vagina, you know? So the fact that the winner of the international Mr. Leather contest in Chicago two weeks ago is a trans man of color from Los Angeles who is like out through the entire process and was there supported by Onyx, which is the black leather club. That is a huge triumph. Yeah, and if there's shit. any sort of golden age, we're in it now. Right. You know, right. because people are so many more people are finding their way to be able to have a voice are finding their way to complicate the discussion are asserting their own value but what is that need for that golden age because i don't think it's unique to the queer community Mm -hmm. i think it's i think even in the art community i think i i hear versions of that where people are like oh it was better before or it's like somehow it was some golden age and i mean every community has this Mm -hmm. right you know even even the the orange dude in the White House, you know, same. It's like, you know, a great again, right? This kind of like idea that somehow it was better before. Yeah. Where does that come from, do you think? I, I think it comes from our fear of loss. Hmm. I think it comes from our fear of the present. It's like we learn to sort of narrate ourselves as being in crisis. You know, people ask you how you are. You never go like... I'm the best I've ever been. You go like, I'm a, I'm okay. It's kind of a crazy day today. There was really traffic. You know, it was sort of... So that tendency, you know, because in part, we know that there is horrible stuff going on in the world. Right. And we want to, in a weird way, kind of honor that. But then we get trapped in this thing of like, oh, there was some time when horrible stuff wasn't going on in the world. And so that's what we have to get back to, that that's the goal. Right. That's the essence of conservatism. Right. Right. Is is saying that the best we could do has already been done. And so we need to get back to that. And I don't believe that. I don't believe that the best we were capable of doing has already been done. I'm with you. I'm totally in agreement. That was a really concise, great answer. Thank you. Now I want to talk a little bit about the intersection of queerness and art. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Paul Monet's book, Becoming a Man. I don't know if you mm-hmm. ever heard of that book or, or were able to read it, but his memoir. And he has a really good passage that I've been thinking about since I first read it about 20 or so years ago, which was this idea that as particularly gay men, and he talks about it in terms of gay men, but just, you know, queerness in general, I think it's also accurate. It was this decoding of modern art Mm -hmm. that seemed to appeal to him Mm -hmm. as a way of decoding. So now 
Do you think that as queer people that naturally appeals to us? Like, is it that decoding that interests us in modern art? And I ask this because, you know, it's not a secret that a lot of particularly gay men when, uh, you know, especially years before, I mean, now a little less frequent because contemporary arts become so popular, but museums and contemporary art places were places gay men found each other, mm-hmm. you know, in many ways. Mm-hmm. And you could always sort of like see the gay couples or the friends or something walking around the museums. Mm-hmm. That, oh, it doesn't matter almost any city you are in the world. So I always think about what is it about modern and contemporary art? And I think art of all types, but I think particularly mm-hmm. modern art brings gay men and queer people into that space or somehow feels like it welcomes them. Any thoughts? I See, I'm too much of a materialist. I would say that art spaces are some of the few public spaces where you can linger and look and not get beat up. Ooh, right. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. I, and, and I mean, there probably was an earlier version of this where when for gay european men the idea was that you were that there was a sort of arc of of homosexuality that went back to ancient greece so by being in the art space where those works of art were being preserved as an appreciator of that culture mm-hmm. then you were allowing yourself to be seen as potentially you know as i just saw a picture of uh, of of art dealer Hudson, who used to be a performance artist, doing this performance piece where he presented himself as an appreciator of the French and Greek arts. You know, and... and uh, So is it that urge to be, like, willingness to be objectified? I mean, what is that willingness? Like, because, you know, those there is an objectification that happens yeah. within those. But, but I think also we're trained that that culture is the feminine sphere, that it is not that it is not the masculine sphere. And I mean, that is a 20th century formulation. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, it was very much a sort of masculine sphere. Right. Right. So the fact that it's thought of as a, a feminine sphere and thus the type of men who would spend their time around cultural events, like going to see the ballet and things like that, would then be effeminate men. Right. Right. So I think that's sort of the way that it has gotten sort of caught up. I do think that there is also one of the things that we understand about queer identity is that because it happens in the face of a kind of enforced societal heterosexual norm, there's a way in which it has to be thought about and invented more than heterosexuality which is narrated as natural right you know right so my big line is that whenever somebody tells me that something is natural i just automatically hear it as cultural because the natural is a category that we have made up right to hide cultural norms absolutely Ooh, that's deep i knew knew you're the person to talk to about this (laughs) can't we stay on the surface nayland just kidding just kidding well i mean this brings me then to a couple of years ago you did a video for the metropolitan museum about one of their objects and you spoke Mm. about the the bali object from the bamana people of mali 
And you know, what I loved about that video is how you talked about the fact that the surface was not really what the object was. Mm -hmm. And it had a whole social function, Mm -hmm. as well as it had almost like a whole ecosystem within it. Mm -hmm. And for those who may not know, they're sort of like these almost mud-like sculptural objects Mm -hmm. that tend to be in kind of animal-like forms. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as you mentioned in the video, people will, you know, pour liquids on them. And they have these different social functions. And this kind of hidden meaning that you know, is maybe sort of a little guarded from a mm-hmm. public that is mm-hmm. not initiated into sure. this. It made me think of your work. Mm-hmm. And I mean, clearly you chose that for a reason. Yeah. You know I, I mean, I was, I felt very close? lucky to get it. It was, it's an object that has meant a lot to me mm-hmm. and an object that I feel like I've learned a lot from in terms of making work. Mm-hmm. I was certainly raised with a kind of post-enlightenment view that being able to see everything was the best possible state. That that we talk about like clarity and we talk about transparency and we talk about being able to see the functioning of government and we have a fear of like the smoke-filled room and right. secret places and all of that stuff. And that speaks to a society where visual clarity is supposedly the bearer of truth. Mm-hmm. And that's one way of thinking about culture. And mm-hmm. that is a way that leads us to like galleries that are big, white, open spaces where you can clearly see everything that happens in them. Mm-hmm. And you yourself as see- are seen as a viewer of things. But then there's another way of thinking about culture which is initiatory Mm -hmm. that you know about something because i've deemed you trustworthy enough to be willing to share it with you that you gain access to a cultural artifact because you have brought something to the table that you are going to sacrifice to that object that so that the that's a whole other trajectory of cultural knowledge Mm -hmm. which is just as valid and in fact has a lot to do with what we think about as queerness, right? Keep going. I'm like, liking where this is like going. Like one of the things, like I talk a lot about being in kink communities. Well, you know, kink communities have to think a lot about consent and trust. Right. They have to think about like we're going to do something together that is difficult to do and potentially dangerous mm-hmm. to our bodies or to our psyches. Right. And so we have to come up with a, a technology of negotiation that allows us to trust each other enough to do the dangerous thing that we're going to do together, right? So that is a cultural operation where we have to either, you have to be wearing like the right outfit with with like the right handkerchief in the right place for me to know what it is that you might in general be interested in. You have to be able to give the right kinds of responses for me to know that you are educated about what it is that we're going to do so that I can trust you to do it safely. Right. And so all of that is a very different kind of culture than sort of enlightenment culture. And as somebody whose interiority is a very different terrain than their exterior appearance that is really important to me as a way of thinking about works of art. Great. Speaking of which, can I loosen the belt you tied around my neck before the interview? (laughs) Is that all right? (laughs) 
Well, of course you can, Prague. The question is, may you? Oh, damn it. I always forget the safe word. <laughs> okay. Okay, good. Now I can breathe. It's, it's, it's all good. So speaking of kinks. Yes. And speaking of, I mean, furries are a community you seem to advocate for a little, mm-hmm. you know, in many ways. And it makes me think about these sort of communities we we join, we feel a kinship with. Mm-hmm. I mean, beyond our sexual communities mm-hmm. and other communities. Now, why are we so fascinated? And I'm not even talking about those of us who participate in them. Mm-hmm. But I think the public. Mm-hmm. What is it about the public and the voyeuristic aspect of these communities that really seems to get a lot of play? And I don't know, maybe I'm reading them wrong, but I would love to think a little bit about what is it about people? I mean, and we can use the sort of like straightforward people just like to see something they don't know or something that might be freakish to them or whatever it is to them. I feel like there's something deeper. I think they want to have hope, to be honest. There's, and and maybe this is, again, my typical sort of backhanded way of answering this question. You know, my... My current beard, I basically have been growing it out for like the past seven years or so. Mm-hmm. It is untrimmed except in, in minor ways. So it's a big beard. Okay. Um, when I walk down the street, men will say to me, nice beard. Like they will remark on my appearance. Right. And they are not presenting as like queer men. Mm-hmm. And I thought about this like, as you probably have experienced, men do not comment on each other's appearance on the street. No. Like, they, like you do not say to somebody, hey, you're looking good today or whatever, if you do w- not know right. them. Women will comment on my hair. Men never comment right. on my hair. Right. As an example. So here was the thing. It's that, like, there is something about when when I think about somebody saying that to me, I think about all of the millions of other times they wanted to say something and did not. Right. And I think what they're saying is like, I wish I could do that. I wish I could be out in public in that way. I wish I could like, good job for doing that. Like, I want a beard like that. Yeah. Or I just want to be out in public in whatever way would be like kind of the freakiest way. And so that's what I mean by like, it's a good beard. Well, thank you. Yeah. And, and I think that's there throughout our culture. Mm. And I think that's what art does, is that it gives us examples of ways of being in the world with less fear, Ooh, being like, like fully that. present as ourselves in the world. And when we do that, other people are drawn to it, you know? And so that's like, you know, people's fascination with furries. Mm-hmm. I mean, furries as a cultural event are not so surprising like you feed a generation after generation of people funny animal cartoons right like in their pre-adolescence and then you're surprised when they like wish that they were those things exactly. like later on in their life absolutely you know i always joke do you know that my first crush as a kid what? It was uh, Mighty Mouse. Oh. That's pretty. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, like you yeah. said, you know, if you're a kid, that's yeah. that's kind yeah. of, you know, that's your world. Yeah, exactly. You know? And here I am having a crush on a little cartoon mouse. Yeah. 
with really big muscles. Yeah. So that was my exactly. thing, I guess, as a kid. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all have our things. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, because, you know, one of the things I think that you have a rare perspective, having gone between San Francisco and New York during these very crucial periods in the formation of queer identities, was obviously the impact of AIDS. You did a number of works. One which I really think resonated with me was Every 12 Minutes from 1991, which mm-hmm. is a clock, and every 12 minutes is marked as an AIDS death. Mm-hmm. So people are aware of how common mm-hmm. and, and how ubiquitous, unfortunately, it was. What did you see? And how did it change you as a person and as an artist? I know this is a deep question because we all have our answers. I mean, those of us who lived through it in different ways. But I'm curious because as somebody who was living in San Francisco at the time, mm-hmm. I mean, that was clearly one of the most impacted communities in the world. Mm-hmm. And what did it teach you? Or what did you hope maybe it would teach you and never did? Because, you know, that's the other thing. Sometimes we remember these things in a much more compact way than they were. And there was much messier. And the lessons are often yeah. messier. I mean, it, things were different year to year. So what was the first experience that you realized something was going on? Uh, well, I was, I, you know, in 1984, I was graduating from CalArts and, and decided that I was going to move up to San Francisco mm-hmm. and had a, a collector in L.A. who was a gay man who, who was like, oh, no, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't move up to San Francisco. Like, stay down in L.A. You know, we're about to have the Olympics. You shouldn't move up to San Francisco. They all have AIDS. Mm. Um, and <laughs> I was like, whoa, whoa OK. Yeah, right. And then uh, I moved up to San Francisco, got a job at a cafe. Mm-hmm. The manager at the cafe is a very sweet guy, like clearly got a little crushed out on me, took me out. He and his boyfriend, like, you know, took me out to a club. We did a, you know, we did a bunch of drugs, went back to his house, like, you know, fucked, had unsafe sex. Mm-hmm. Um Two months later, he was diagnosed. Wow! You know, and uh, I think a year, I think a year and a half after that, he died. He was sort of the first person that I knew who, you know, personally that I'd had sexual contact with who died. Was that a wake up call for you? I mean, what you know? Yes, but I, but I mean, was I like totally scared? Yes. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I was 25, so, like, and I had been, like, I was first sneaking into gay porn theaters and and bookstores at age 15, Mm because I was, like, a tall kid. And in New York, it was a lot easier. Like, I could sort of pass. Nobody was being ID'd. Yeah, exactly. I could pass for 18, given that the people who were, you know, operating those ticket booths, like, did not really care. And truthfully, before 9-11, most people weren't being ID'd for most things in New York. Yes, yeah. Well, and the drinking age was 18. Right. So, anyway. But, so, I had had, like, almost a good, you know... 10 years not quite but you know a good many years of sexual activity before i even got there right and so you know yeah around that time we were figuring out it's like oh yeah you have to use condoms you have to figure that you know this stuff that the reporting in san francisco was full of what i would say is that san francisco had a much more sophisticated reaction as a municipality to the AIDS crisis than New York did. Right. 
And that was really apparent at the time that there was an attempt to kind of import ACT UP activism tactics to the Bay Area without really thinking about like the ways in which they could be applicable. Right. Because in many ways, the activity of ACT UP New York was based on the fact that queer people had no political power in this city. Hmm. And so they had to both raise awareness of their existence and develop political power here in a way that that work had already begun in San Francisco. Like it does not make sense in the mid 80s to or the the late 80s to raise gay visibility in San Francisco. Right, right, right. It's like it is visible, you know. Yeah, I mean, by then Harvey Milk and a lot of other things had already been going on. Yeah, absolutely. So now, did the art community, did that response feel sophisticated? Did it feel, because, you know, I spoke to another um, gay artist here in New York, and he felt like it didn't really change that much. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know? And people were still in the closet yeah. and people were still not yeah. feeling who you'd agree. I I would agree to the extent that certainly in the Bay Area, you know, I was talking about how things were kind of overlaid on each other. Mm-hmm. The gay world was not necessarily talking to the art world. The art world in some ways was connected to San Francisco society, the sort of the Fishers, the Swigs, the, you know, the people around SF MoMA sort of right. like and the grandfather. But that layer of San Francisco society had nothing to do with the gay community or acknowledgement of the gay community. Right. Right. Um, It really took Amfar coming in for the sort of upper end charity giving to be kicked into gear in San Francisco. And because it was a national organization, because it wasn't, right. it wasn't coming from San Francisco. So there was a lot of stratification. I would say that the alternative art spaces responded really early to the AIDS crisis mm-hmm. and individuals responded but that the sort of higher end art world, it took them a while to sort of get it together. Right, right. And so fast forward, mm-hmm. you moved back to New York. Mm-hmm. When was that? That was in 1996. And that was after organizing in a different light. Right. For University Art Museum in Berkeley. Do you want to explain that a little for people who don't know it? That was a show um, that attempted to look at uh, sort of the impact of queer thinking and queer art ideas on art of the 20th century. And it included people like all the way from Romaine Brooks up through, uh, you know, up through work that was being made in the Bay Area, like right around you know that time right so why did you come back to new york after that i mean that was almost what was that 12 years years ago 20 but 12 years in in uh you were about 12 years in san francisco and then you decided to come back well for one thing i missed seasons (laughs) that was that was a little frustrating you don't like the chilly summers summer Uh, evenings in san francisco no No. i you know it was kind of no. Um, but also, I felt like I had kind of done everything that I could do there. Like, right. like I felt like, you know, I had had shows at SFMOMA. I had, I had, like, curated this big show at Berkeley. I was teaching at a bunch of these different institutions. There was... 
you know, I was on the board of Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. So I was like working in all these organizations, but that felt like, okay, that's it. Like it, like it wasn't that I couldn't necessarily see something else that I was going to then take on there that was not available to me. So then you arrive back in New York. Yes. First thing you do. Look for a job. Okay. Um, first job that I got, thanks to my sister, was working as a receptionist and towel boy at the Chelsea Gym. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's quite a job. You know what? I was taught that when you need a job, you go out and get a job. Right. Absolutely. And that was and and that was like the first thing. You know, I didn't. I I had bills to pay. I I had a lot of debt. Mm-hmm. Um, from school? Some from school, a lot from not understanding about paying taxes. Ah, yes. Yep. And also from some compulsive spending. There was, ah, a, there was yes. a lot of things like tied up together. Got it. But really it was like the, I mean, there's sort of only been two years in my life where I really made a lot of money from making work. And that was the thing that immediately got me in trouble. Because I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't have anybody right. who was teaching right, me like, right, right. you know, you put a third of everything aside to send right. out for taxes. This is how you file. Mm-hmm. Like all of that. I had no training in any of that. Right. That's right. So as such, I had like tons of IRS fees and ongoing balances and things like that. That's right. So you came back to New York. You got a job. Mm-hmm. You started making work again. Uh, or yes. you never stopped yes. making work. Uh, no, I, there was like a little bit of a gap there. Okay. Yeah. And was that the period where you started doing the suits or was that before you left San Francisco? That was before I left San Francisco. Because I think your suit pieces feel very much of the time right now, like prescient almost. Hmm. And I'm curious what the thinking behind them are. And for those who don't know, there are different types of suits. You yeah, yeah. Some are like gauzy-like. Mm-hmm. Others are kind of more furry-like. Mm-hmm. Um where where did that come from? You know, when I first started making the work that I began outside of school, I started thinking about it as props, as theatrical props, mm-hmm. in the way that a chair that you see on stage in a theater is a chair that you can sit on, mm-hmm. but in some weird way, it's also playing the role of a chair. Right. Right. So it is an object that has a kind of mental life as well attached to it. Mm-hmm. And after doing that for quite a while, I started thinking about puppets and the way that a puppet is this odd interim between an actor and its own sort of entity that Mm -hmm. the puppets have their own voices and its own sort of characteristic movements that are not quite the same as the puppeteers Mm. Um, and so that also then began you know an object that has a kind of implied psychology and then um the suits were sort of life yeah right to go back to the bull story yeah. yeah that's right And then the suits became, in some ways, the next projection of that. You know, they're costumes. In some ways, they present a kind of external meaning. Mm -hmm. I think for myself, it's, uh, you know, I've always been, I'm a black person who passes for white. Mm -hmm. And so, again, as I say, like, you know, my legal identity as a black person 
is not perceptible visually, but we expect race in this country and this culture to all be about the visible. Right. And so the suits in some ways like talk about like, you know, does race exist in skin? What is my own conflicted relationship with my skin? Right. You know, the suits both like contain and compress my body. You know, Mm -hmm. some of them have a kind of implied genitalia or you know so and you know, some some are very oversized too yes That's yeah right. yeah there's actually right now opening on the 10th i think it is is a piece called the big one which is like a like a 12 foot long bunny suit that's going to be in the Hayward Gallery's Kiss My Gender show that's opening at South Bank great so yeah there's in that way they're my way of being able to think about you know what are our different roles what are the what are the things that we inhabit what does it mean to like dress up so now let's get to what i brought up earlier about Mm. the dematerialization of your work Mm -hmm. am i reading that right i mean i feel like there's sort of a materiality that is now becoming i don't know how to describe it but you know these objects become increasingly like proxies for things Hmm. and some of them like are sort of put together in these assemblages in Mm -hmm. these ways that i feel like they're acting out scenes Mm -hmm. but they're not quite as direct maybe as some of your earlier work which which, Mm -hmm. by the way i was surprised to find that you were a painter very early on Mm -hmm. that i wasn't expecting i don't know why i didn't know that part and then Mm -hmm. (laughs) now i see Mm -hmm. that you had a whole painting life yeah for years yeah yeah and then you sort of by the 80s you sort of put that aside and or at least by the mm-hmm, middle ladies mm-hmm. and then you know it comes up in your yeah. other things here and there i mean i had a very specific kind of training as a painter with very kind of formal painters and so i have a lot of rules about like what makes a good painting what makes a bad painting <laughs> can we hear it oh my god in a nutshell i think the thing that's that's remarkable about painting is that it embodies two different time frames that when you look at a painting you see the sort of overall image in a kind of instantaneous way mm-hmm. but then you also read the time painting of the application of each stroke so that you're seeing in a like also operating in your mind is the hand moving across the surface of the painting right i believe that like you know space is made in painting through color mm-hmm. that i'm loving this <laughs> nailing blake school of painting yeah I so i mean i tend to like kind of critique like you know i have students who are primarily based in photography but when they start right, bringing te- in painting you teach at the icp the international center for photography mm-hmm. for those who don't know yeah Go ahead, sorry. so when you know my students start bringing in paintings i think they often expect like oh well this is a free pass because i'm a photographer i don't paint at all you know this is of course right. like whatever i'm doing is interesting and my tendency will be like well i don't think that this is you know i don't think this is really working as a painting like you need to think about this or this it's like there's something else to think about you know i i was taught that like pure black or pure white in a painting is really a problem because it tends to force all color towards either one of those values Mm -hmm. so it's better to like mix to a black than and mix to a white than to like let them exist straight out of the tube things like that gotcha a lot of this hi nancy michnick this is these are the the, i still have like the your painting lessons about how to lay out a palette and all of those things they are deeply embedded in my mind so i still make paintings on occasion but you tend you tend towards objects now yeah 
And you did installation for a while. Mm -hmm. And then you went back to sculpture. Mm-hmm. It felt like. And now you're sort of in between those. I don't know. Like, how, yeah. would, you, how would you describe it? I mean, it? I do think of myself as a radical formalist, which is that mm. I believe that when you're trying to do a particular thing, it's better to engage with the form that that does that best. So there are certain things that, like, a comic can do right. that a painting can't do. Right. There are certain things like and and I thought about this a lot through the experience of the AIDS crisis, right? Mm. If you want the FDA to accelerate a drug testing protocol, well, a pretty indirect and not very good way of doing that is by painting a figure of a, you know, making a figurative painting of a kind of emaciated person like sitting in a in a bare room with a bare bulb over their head. It's like that might help, but (laughs) it's probably better to go down to the FDA and yell at them. Like that's a better formal decision. There are things that that painting can do that yelling at the FDA can't do. And so, you know, think about what it is that you're trying to achieve with that. Gotcha. So that's where the radical formalism comes in. Right. That it's about, like, it's about being willing to adopt the form that makes sense for the thing that you're trying to connect with. So now we're in a stage in our culture, I think, where Mm -hmm. we're probably in one of the most tumultuous periods of our history. Mm -hmm. And when I say our history, I mean of the United States, Mm -hmm. at least in the recent last hundred years yeah and i'm curious where your medical formulism is sort of directing you where where are you seeing the urgencies and issues in your own work and in your communities well i mean this is the thing that gets me back to the aids crisis right Mm -hmm. after the 2016 election i remember being on the train going into work um and the quietness of everybody on that train and the sort of tenderness with which people were treating each other and treating strangers, like the sort of shock that people were in. And I was thinking, I was like, okay, well, what does this remind me of? And I was like, okay, this reminds me of being in San Francisco in the mid 80s under the Reagan administration. Right. The sense that every day you would wake up and read in the newspaper some other way that your government was assaulting you and those that you cared about. And I feel bad for my younger students because they had eight years of not having to worry about their government plotting against them. For me, it's not a surprise that that is the case. So I've been thinking a lot about like, okay, what did we do in that time? Mm -hmm. It's like, we showed up for each other, right? So before, you know, like Meals on Wheels was invented during the AIDS crisis because there was no formal way of getting food and healthcare to people. So someone was like, all right, I can like, if we can make a bunch of meals, then I can like drive, you know, I volunteer to like drive around and drop stuff off on this day. And I remember when friends would get diagnosed, there would be a kind of like convening of like, okay, who's going to do what? Who's going to make sure that they like get to their appointment on this day? Or who's going to, you know? Right. And that was not a government structure. That was people coming together to look out for each other. Right. And then similarly, I think occupying the same physical space as the people that you care about is something that we have been encouraged not to do 
for the past 10 years. Mm. And it's something that we need to regain the ability to do. Because of the internet? Yes. So like one of the things like this year, I've been having like crafting parties at my house so that I can be in my living room with a bunch of people making things. Right. And that just feels you know, really good. Right. And and that's an idea that I got in part from Ramaquana Rister's crochet jam events, you know, from out on the West Coast. Right. That sense of like getting people together, not even necessarily like in protest or in solidarity, but just like being able to spend time where all we're going to do is make stuff and asserting that value again. I feel like those are the things that we need to remember to bring together because the sort of assaultive nature of online media is about keeping us constantly in a state of overstimulation so that we register our reactions online and maintain their traffic flow. That's right. Which is what their business is based on. Right. Makes sense. I mean, we could go on forever. So I'm trying to figure <laughs> we out will how go we... will go on forever. That's right. We will. We will. Forever and ever. Is there anything that I haven't covered that you'd like to talk about? Because, you know, this is Pride Month. And, you know, and I, we're releasing it during this month for a particular case, because I think in many ways you show people how you can be queer in the world in, in mm -hmm. all its beauty Aww. and, you know, and without conforming, because I don't think I have ever seen you conform. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, uh, but you're also having a retrospective at the ICA in LA. Yes. And you're showing, like you said, at the Hayward Gallery and many other places. You have a prominent teaching position here in New York mm -hmm. in the arts field. And you're making work all the time. And, you know, and I think in many ways, you're a little bit of a pushing against the idea that we all, yeah, that the art world sort of has a tendency to homogenize. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you know? Which I think is a, yeah. a thing. Yes. But it definitely isn't as totalizing as people pretend it is. I, I think that I got into the art world and for the same reason that I got into kink, which is that it, it looked to me at a certain time in my life like a place where I would not have to apologize for my weirdness. And the truth is that for any group of people, as they start to get together, there can be a drive towards professionalization. Mm -hmm. And the first step in professionalization is learning to apologize for your weirdness. Mm. Um, so I'm only here because of the bravery of a bunch of other people who were unapologetic. And, and it's like only because I can sort of look to their example that I can sometimes draw on their courage and i mean an interesting thing that i've seen in my life right is that finally we're acknowledging like how diverse and weird those people were mm -hmm. you know in their moments of unapologetic rebellion you know not only at stonewall but at like places in los angeles and places in you know places in san francisco and globally really and globally yeah. and that that's why we're here you know for any reason that i can figure out is to like give each other hope to give each other those examples of not apologizing for our existence, you know, and for reveling in the fact that we're here because we deserve to be here. That's beautiful, Nayland. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. And so now, do you mind um, tightening the, the belt on my neck? 
<laughs> so we have to learn we have to teach you something about topping from the bottom because really if this was a those of you in a you know in king scenes like if you were really bottoming to me we would have a discussion about what it meant for you to give me orders in the form of asking me questions i thought we did have that conversation mm, but i no. guess someone didn't remember no 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 oh <laughs> I thought this was a space of honesty at the hyperallergic. <laughs> okay, but that's all right okay. if you want. It's all right. If you want, it's, all right. That. it's all right. We won't go there. But I'm thank just, you. I'm just glad that I got to make you blush as much. I wish that the, you know this is an audio medium, but Prague is, is blushing a great amount right I, now, I and really it makes am. me very happy. <laughs> well done, well done. So thank you, Nailint, again. Thank you. Of course, Nailin had to prove what a novice I was. A special thanks to Twig Twig for the music to this week's episode. And an extra special thanks to Swan Auction Galleries, as they're supporting our Pride Month series to coincide with their first ever Pride Sale, a curated auction of material related to the LGBTQ experience and the gay rights movement. The sale takes place on June 20th, 2019, and a corresponding exhibition of works will be on view, and that will begin June 15th and continue until the date of the sale. And for this special month, we're also featuring LGBTQ artists of every type every single day this month on the website itself as part of a series titled Queer Artists in Their Own Words, which has been organized by Hyperallergic's own Zachary Small. Visit hyperallergic.com and check it out. I'm Hrag Vartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and happy Pride, everyone. <laughs>